You're listening to Wood Talk Online with your hosts, Mark and Matt. Take it away, boys. Welcome to Wood Talk Online, Episode 9, a podcast for sexy woodworkers by sexy woodworkers. I'm Mark Spagnolo. And I'm Matt Vanderlist. Ooh, wait, my pillow talk voice didn't come out the right way. <laughs> a little deeper, a little deeper. <clears throat> Hello. <laughs> so, so anyways, I'm Matt, though, obviously. And uh, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for sexy woodworkers like ourselves, you can mm-hmm. always reach us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. And the neat thing is you can also send us a great message with your fantastic voice by sending it to our, mm, excuse me while I clear my sexy voice, <laughs> you can send it to our voicemail, which is, you can find that at the Woodtalk Online online.com site and basically just click on the button that says leave voicemail and you have your opportunity to have your two minutes of fame because you don't encroach on ours there you go so and it looks like you know what oh before we move into it because we did get some uh-huh. calls um one more reminder we, we kind of this came up last week if, when you call us kind of turn up the volume on your microphone because we sometimes yeah. have to strain really hard because we've been working with power tools too long so it, it kind of <laughs> exactly. helps for yeah. everybody to hear the ones that came in this week were good last week we had a couple that were really really low so sorry about that but we we cranked it up as high as we could and that, that was the best i could do so just make sure your input volume is up uh and that's all you got to do it's very easy to leave those uh those voicemails uh, so let's just jump right into it. We've got one here today from a caller named uh, Nicole, actually, and uh, let's hear what she has to say. Oh, must be interesting. Hi, Mark. My name's Nicole. I have a quick question for you. I've seen you guys before, and you truly surpassed them all. Not only are you a woodworking genius, but you're one fine piece of testosterone-filled man. My question is, how'd you get that way? Well, um, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> yep, I would say lots of push ups, and um, uh, I don't know, it's just it's just something that comes natural to me. You're being so modest, seriously, <laughs> you know, I have to be in this line of work, I need to be, yes, definitely. Um, let's uh, <laughs> let's move on to a serious voicemail. Okay, uh, this one is from Wilbur from my old stomping grounds in the Jay Z. Not sure what part of New Jersey, but he's from New Jersey, and that's good enough. Yeah, good enough. Yeah, definitely. All right, right, let's have a listen. Hi, guys. This is Wilbur from New Jersey. I love all of your various shows. I have a question about power jointers versus jointing with hand planes. In many reviews of jointers, a common criticism is that the beds are, quote, too short, which theoretically limits the length of a board that can be jointed. If this is really an issue, how come you're able to flatten a board with hand planes? Even a number seven or number eight jointer plane is much shorter than the shortest jointer bed that I know of. Keep up with good work, guys. Thanks. All right, so Wilbur uh, wants to know about the jointer, and uh, you know this may be a better question for Matt to answer, but I'll, I'll throw my my hat in. Um, uh, to me, if you're using a, a hand jointer, you can actually approach each individual section of the board. You're not really expecting to go over the entire board in one smooth motion and flatten a board. You would sort of treat each, you know, two or three feet of the board. You don't necessarily try and do the whole thing at once. So, um, you know, in terms of uh, the, the hand plane, you could attack those small sections safely and, and move across and keep them all in the same plane. Try that on a jointer and you're, you're going to be in trouble. You can't attack individual parts of that board. Uh, you, you sort of can sometimes, but you got to be really, really careful. You're really just better off um, getting a board that is full length that can go across in one full motion. But that's why the length of the bed is limiting because you have to do it in one pass. And the hand plane you could do in multiple passes in multiple sections. Would yeah. you, is that kind of what you, what you would say with that? Yeah, I, I would definitely say that, that that's definitely the situation. Because really when it comes to the, the hand plane, um, the, the one thing is, like you said, you, you, you're going to be working in sections. And you can get a, a, a dead flat board. It definitely takes a little while. And this is where, like, you know, the um, – like if you're trying to get a, a, a flat surface and everything, this is where that kind of cambering of the edge comes in and everything to try and mimic that, you know, like it is one big wide pass and everything. But right. the, the, the one thing with the, the hand plane is the fact that you're taking such smaller um, depths from it. You know, the thickness is so small compared, even when you're really pushing that blade all the way open, which I don't know how anybody would be able to do that for a long period. Um, you know, you're taking smaller ones out. So yeah, it's kind of nibbling away at it, but eventually you do get a, a smooth port, but it takes a lot of pressure practice you know to, to get it completely jointed out so okay. definitely yes cool. cool all right let's see here now we have another listener who uh sent us an email and uh, uh that would be our old ski oh yeah voicemail email <laughs> same thing 
Well, you know, I think he did send us some email too. So <laughs> uh, Ski uh, tries to communicate with us any way that he can, and we appreciate that. that. That's right. So uh, we voicemails are a lot easier. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that way we don't mess it up with our own words, like you know, English second language for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, but uh, so we have Ski's uh, voicemail. So let's take a listen to that. Matt and Mark, this is Ski calling in with yet another question. Here is the deal. I'm curious about the use of different wood species within the same project and how you balance that. So, for example, I saw on Mark's inlay demonstration, he was inlaying offsetting wood or different species of wood uh, to provide contrast after the project was complete. Are there rules or guidelines that you could suggest relative to how to use different species within the same project? I think the hardest part about using different species in uh, in, in the same project is more or less trying to is, is if there's a huge difference in the grain pattern and everything. That's to me the 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 biggest thing to be working with on that. Um, sure. I mean, I definitely use multiple species in, in a lot of projects, but more or less it's like I use them as like a secondary wood versus, you know, say I'm using like uh, some really expensive wood. I don't want to be using that for a lot of my pieces that aren't going to be seen anyways, you know, so that's sure. that's where I use it. But when it comes, you know, to like, you know, a desktop or something like that, um, really it's just a matter, of, in my opinion, the hardest part is trying to match up the, the grain patterns and everything. That's where the most okay. difficult part comes in. Well, for me, I would say that there are really no rules and guidelines. They're all very personal. Um, if if you're using multiple woods, I mean, you can combine things, and it comes down to taste. It's like um, asking an artist how do they you know choose what colors they're going to use, and a lot of it is very subjective. So I don't know that I could really give them any rules and guidelines. Just try to stay within normal taste. Don't overdo the multiple color thing. You know, you don't want to make a rainbow. Um, for me personally, and this again, this just may be my taste. I think that the exotics are really good for accent woods. So if your primary project is oak or if it's, um, excuse me, some domestic wood like maple, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of walnut trim or a walnut inlay or a purple heart inlay or something, just something nice, tasteful, not too much. If you really get, you know, if you overdo it with the different types of woods, you'll confuse the eye. Just like in any other art, too many colors uh, in one small place just becomes gaudy, you know. So it's it's really just a matter of taste. But I would definitely say there really are no rules and guidelines. You just have to establish your own rules and guidelines for your tastes. Right. Um, yeah. So the uh, next voicemail that we have is actually uh, not a question. It's actually a comment and a um, I would almost say glowing review of the Lee FMT. So for Ooh, those nice. of you who yeah, for those of you who have one, we'd be really interested in hearing what you have to say about it because uh, uh, I don't know if anyone knows, but Lee is one of the sponsors, and I'm always interested in hearing uh, what people think of their tools. They clearly make some good stuff. So let's hear what JT has to say about the FMT. Hey, Mark and Matt. Just want to let you know I enjoy your show. I listen to it on my commute here in Houston uh, every week. Uh, enjoy it. A couple weeks ago you had mentioned uh, and we're talking about uh, – uh, joinery techniques and uh, mortise and tenon joints. And I just received a uh, uh, Lee FMT mortise and tenon jig and tried it out on my first project, and the results were outstanding. When you, um, when you fit the pieces together on a dry fit, uh, they're nice and snug, uh, slide together uh, with just a little bit of tension going in, when you pull them apart, you get a nice popping sound where it's uh, it's really well put together and and makes for a, a absolutely perfect joint. Uh, they're right on the money. Within uh, just a few thousandths of an inch, you can you can get those dialed in. It's it's really a a nice set, and I thought maybe you might want to mention it to some of your uh, <clears throat> other readers. It's a little bit pricey, but. Uh, the amount of time it saves you once you get the the sets dialed in uh, for the wood that you're using and the size, uh, you can just cut mortise after mortise and tenon after tenon and and get exactly repeatable results. Excellent, excellent deal. So uh, clearly, JT 
uh, likes the FMT. Oh, you got that from that? I wasn't quite sure. I was. I thought he was on the fence, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if any of you have an opportunity to get some time on it, uh, I recommend it. And I still, I would. I actually have not had a chance to get some hands on with that tool, and I would love to. I hear, especially with all the the, the buzz going around about the Domino, that people are saying if you invest uh, even a little bit less money into a tool like the FMT, you get even more versatility out of it, um, and you just don't have to pay as much. That may take a little longer in terms of setup. Um, but I would love to hear your opinions and especially see some projects that you've made with it. Yeah, definitely. I think that'd be a great thing to see. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, let's jump right into email. And this is going to be another one of those rapid fire, as rapid as two you know talkative people like Matt and I can can be, uh, which isn't usually that rapid. Right. I agree because sometimes people get a lo- little long winded, and sometimes you know it's not possible to. Oh wait. Okay. Never mind. I was gonna go into my. <laughs> go on. Go on. <laughs> no, no, okay. we're good. You, no, you continue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the uh, the first email we have here is from Mike. Uh, he says, "Hi, Matt and Mark. It's a lot of M's. Mark, Matt, Mike." Biblical names, too, actually. Yeah. Uh, I live in the area, where does he say? I live in an area of Canada that gets all four seasons. This causes uh, moisture issues on my cast iron tool tops as the temperature dips below zero and then warms up, causing moisture. My workshop is not heated, so I have no temperature control available to me. I noticed today that my joiner has developed some rust on the top. My question is twofold. How do I remove the rust from the cast iron, and how do I prevent it from stopping again? I.e., what uh, can I coat the cast iron with, and where can I buy it? By the way, I love the podcast. Now, this is something that we've covered a couple times, so check back on some of the other Wood Talk uh, episodes. And in my bandsaw tune-up uh, podcast that I did, um, there's a video on tuning up the bandsaw, and it was a new saw, so I did show my treatment for the cast iron top. And I live in a very dry climate, so I'm a little bit less concerned about rust. Uh, but this is something that is talked about ad nauseum in the forums and things. I mean, it's always an issue how to prevent rust. Um, uh, do you do you have any podcasts where you actually covered this in the past, or should we just run through it real quick? Um, no, I really haven't gotten into it too much. I think I kind of just reiterated a few things that you had mentioned. So, yeah, it's kind of okay. an offhand, so we just jump right into it. Okay, well, for me personally, what I usually do is I abrade the surface either with steel wool or high-grit sandpaper, wet-dry sandpaper, and some mineral spirits, and I use that to actually clean off the surface and get rid of the rust. Uh, you could use a little WD-40 to lubricate you know, the surface, uh, but it's just as easy to use mineral spirits. Um, after that point, you got a nice clean top. If you did use WD-40, go ahead and wipe it down with mineral spirits afterwards, clean all that off. And then at that point, a lot of guys may just go with a coat of wax. Um, what I found to be the most useful, and I think, Matt, you do a similar thing, is to use the T9 Bow Shield product. Now, there mm-hmm. are people who I've actually read recently who have ha- not had luck with that, and that's oh, really? fine. I mean, every, every yeah, I mean, amazingly, that's that always seems, I always thought it was kind of a universal thing. Everybody seemed to, they may not like the way the product works in terms of um, how sticky and gooey it can be, but it right. always seems to protect from rust. Uh, but I've heard some differing opinions. But either way, I still think that's your best option. Uh, coat the top with the uh, T9, uh, let it soak in for a little bit, wipe it off, uh, wipe off the excess, and then come back the next day and give it a good wipe down again. And at that point, add some wax to the top, some type of furniture wax with no silicone in it, uh, and that way you can kind of slick up the top a little bit, and it should do a good job at, at keeping uh, the rust away. But I think this is a good one for, for us to hear from other people and what, what ideas they might have and leave some comments on the website uh, because I know there's a, there's a ton of solutions for this, so hopefully you know we'll hear from some other people too. Yeah, definitely. I'm really kind of curious to see what else is out there. So, yeah, please, please, people, send it to us. Send us your send information. Send it on in. Comments, suggestions. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I really don't have anything else to add. I, I that's I definitely 100% behind you on all of that. So, cool. cool. Let's move on to our next one. Our, our next shotgun shatter. Let's see here. <laughs> uh, hi, guys. I have really enjoyed your podcast so far. Keep up the good work. I'm still a novice in fine woodworking. Could you spend some time talking about dealing with warped, bowed, coped, Oh, excuse me, cupped <laughs> or worse, <laughs> <laughs> twisted stock. Uh, specific storage tips to prevent appreciated, uh, of course, but uh, would oh, would be appreciated, of course. But resorting, oh man, I'm really off. To, yes, resorting. <laughs> let, me, let me help you there. Resorting. That's my apparently my Midwestern accent. <laughs> but resorting to planing and sawing it away until it is straight uh, is pretty wasteful. Is there any other ways that uh, you've dealt with it to minimize, even restore it by such as bending it back? If you do resort uh, to it using a really twisted piece and a plain saw, blah blah, just bring it back to a usable piece. I am sorry, people. I am so off tonight. Um, is it likely Take to a deep stay breath. that way? 
Take a deep breath. Take I'm a drink of water. So nervous. <laughs> That's okay, what it yeah. is. It's it's the live aspect. Yeah. Um, oh. you see what you're doing to me, people. And I'm not even reading your comments. <laughs> well, actually, I don't. For the people who are listening to the recording, just to let you know, we are actually putting this feed out through uh, live through the uh, webcam page or the the Wood Whisperer live page on my website. So um, once in a while, if you're at there at the right time, you might get a little treat like this. But uh, that's who we're talking about when we say we're doing this live. That's right. The people so. that are making me have the sweaty palms. <laughs> <laughs> just, rem- just picture them all naked. Oh, no, thanks. I just I can't even read now. <laughs> Could you imagine a bunch of woodworking guys sitting naked at their computers listening to us it's talk right now? Bad enough when I do it. <laughs> that is fantastic. Okay, let's move on. We've got okay. a lot to get to here. So uh, the last part of it is if you do resort to using a really twisted piece and plain or saw it back to a usable piece, is it likely to stay that way or will it further release stress later and twist and etc.? So the mm-hmm. Just of the whole question is how do you deal with warp, bowed, cupped, etc., twisted stock? Well, my first thing that I obviously I highly suggest is when you're picking out your wood, try to avoid these pieces if at all possible. Now, the next thing I do is is more or less if I have to use these, we'll get to this in just a second. Because actually, I think the, the next part of it was more or less specific storage tips to help prevent this. One yeah. thing I, I like to do is as I'm stacking it, obviously I want to make sure that if I um. If one is already bowed or cupped, they're, they're pretty much the only way I can see around getting around the, the problem of it being bowed or cupped is simply you, I would use those for like shorter pieces. That's that's my main thing is it's like one of those – the easiest way for me to get over a bowed or a cupped piece or the one that's twisted is more or less to make it smaller pieces because if it's right. twisted over a long range, obviously it is going to be a problem and – uh, I know that you had mentioned once a, a possible idea of letting it sit out in the sun and collect some dew and maybe trying to yeah. reform it that way. But really when it comes to storage, if I if I picked up a load of lumber, like I have some in my, my shop right now, and if I want to keep it from twisting and moving and everything else as it's starting to acclimate to my shop, maybe it's starting to dry out some more, I like to weight it down, have some heavy weights on top of it to kind of force it to stay in the shape it's already in to avoid, you know, as it's as it's. Uh, starting to dry and twist and everything. Now, is this going to take care of it 100%? I don't think so. If the board is going to twist, it's going to twist. Um, I know that there is uh, a type of, form, depending on where the wood is coming from in the tree, there's actual stress wood, I think is what it's called, where no matter what you do with this, it's going to constantly, it's going to bow. It's just, you know, or twist or what have you. So there are obviously certain uh certain pieces that there's not much you can do with it. And then that's where the notion of if it is cupped, well, if you can you know, take the time if it does work in your project where you could maybe cut that board in half, you're actually going to take that cup and eliminate a good portion of it because now you've cut it into two pieces that are probably way more flat than they were when they were together in the large cup board. The same right. thing with the twist. If you can get shorter boards out of it, these shorter boards you might actually find are pretty much flat uh, in comparison to the longer board. It's really a matter of strategically working with the board that you have, trying to figure out the right way to uh, work around the, the defect more or less is the, the way right. I kind of look at it. Um, other than that, yeah, I agree, you know, planning it down and maybe even resawing sometimes, you know, it, it maybe could be more of an effort than it's really worth. And, you know, then maybe by the time you get done doing it, the, the wood is more of the wood is gone than you really want. So right. that's pretty right. much my suggestion. <laughs> right. Well, and I would add to that, just don't be afraid to just you know, to throw a piece of wood, not throw it out, but say, okay, I got to cut this up and use it for smaller pieces. Don't force a piece into a position it doesn't want to be in. There's, if, if a piece of wood has a natural uh, predisposition to be a certain angle or to cup a certain way, it's a lot, it's very difficult to, to train it to do something else and then to keep it that way. So uh, don't be afraid to just scrap a piece and move on to the next piece for that, that perfect project because you don't want it. Uh, it. It's just not worth it in the final result a year later this thing decides the cup on you and becomes a problem. So, right. Uh, but good advice, man. Yeah. Um, and I, I think one more thing to kind of back that up. This is also that notion of where you buy a little extra to yep. compensate just for that. Cause you never know what's going to happen. If you let the board sit in your shop for just, you know, a couple of days or so, you know, maybe your shop's a little bit drier. So something it's all over the place. Exactly. So, cool. Absolutely. Uh, moving on to skis question. Uh, like huh. I said, ski, ski gets a lot in here. He's, he's he back gets again. The bonus points. <laughs> uh, he's got two questions in, in one here is, uh, well, he actually had five, but I just picked two. 
he asked about structure versus weight. He says, how do you know how much weight the structure you build can take? How do you know if one and a half inch by one and a half inch legs are strong enough for a particular application, or if you do need to move to four by four posts to support the monster table you're building? Uh, are there common rules of thumb about size and spans that they can cover? Well, there, there sort of are, and I guess after a few years of being in the business, I kind of have an eye for it. Something will either look right or it won't look right to me. I say it might need a little bit more support, and it's by no means a mathematical thing. It's just a gut feeling. Um, but uh, I would say, you know, one thing you should do is look at some of the other pieces of furniture out there because a lot of these things have been established um, and different proportions have been established already. So take a cue from what's already been built and use that as a model for what you're going to do or, you know, slightly change it, uh, but use it as the basis for your decision making. Um, and you mentioned possibly having a website or something he could check out? Yeah, definitely. Uh, one uh, website that I think that would have a lot of this information is, and I have talked about this one before, it's woodbin.com. And when you go to it, actually, I believe it's right on his homepage. In fact, I'm bringing it up right now. Off to the left-hand side, he has what are referred to as woodworking references. And he has one that's on project design, which really kind of walks you through quite a few of the steps. And then another one is furniture standards. And I think this might be, Ski, what you're kind of looking for. This has everything from... Uh, bed dimensions to suggested table dimensions, what have you. So this might be a good location, not just for ski, but for anybody that's looking for these questions. If you're kind of, you know, if you're questioning what you're designing, this might be a good spot to look. Uh, looks like the majority of these furniture standards are pretty much standards that a lot of, uh, you know, the big furniture makers actually go by, or you know, some of those beautiful custom woodworkers. Yep, exactly. So yeah, that's definitely a place. Woodbin.com. I highly suggest checking Great. it out. I've seen it, but I haven't been there in a while, so I think I'll check it out. Okay. Okay, his second part, Stain on the Driveway. Oh. Sounds like a song. Yeah, actually. it does. That's a country um, song. I'm inspired. I'm going to go write it. <laughs> uh, he says, so I stain my work out in the driveway on calm days when the particulars, I think you meant to say particles, uh, flying around won't be too bad. Works pretty well, uh, but as a basement garage kind of shop, I end up with the stain on my driveway. Sure, I could use newspaper, easy answer, but alas, that wasn't the thought in my head for the first couple of projects. Uh, what can I do to clean up the concrete? As a side note, uh, what makes the best shop floor material? I see where Mark has mats in front of each workstation in his shop. Please elaborate on their benefits. Uh, well, I can probably recommend the cleaner, and I, I haven't really tried it myself, but it's, it's easily available, is uh, TSP. You could buy it in the little uh, carton things, the little cardboard cartons like uh, like you used to get milk in school, uh, except for I wouldn't drink it. Uh, it's <laughs> trisodium phosphate. It's a heavy-duty cleaner, um, and I would hope that that would be strong enough with mixed with a little bit of water and a little bit of uh, scrubbing, maybe get one, a brass brush or you know br one of those like really tight bristle brushes and uh, get down there and scrub it and see if that'll take it up. Um, there's always you know acid etching type things that are a little bit more intense that you can do, but I don't know that I would necessarily go that far without certainly consulting someone who knows more about the topic than I do. Um, but TSP might be a good start um, and just, uh, you know, get it on there, scrub it up and see if it comes up. And again, this is another good opportunity for people to get back to us and say uh, what they've tried in the past. And I know a lot of people just prepping their concrete for either like an epoxy coating or something like that. A lot of times you have to clean it. Well, every time you should be cleaning the surface and, and prepping it properly first. And I think a lot of those cleaning methods could be applied to this as well. Um, yep. And to hit the second part of his question, uh, I do use pads everywhere. If I could have them all over the floor, I would. Um, I have lower back issues occasionally and uh, from an injury in the past. And uh, my feet hurt a lot when I stand up too much. So having the pads around, um, I mean, look at any place, any business, any, any place where people stand all day. And there's always a pad for them to stand on. And it just, you know, makes sense. Uh, it really reduces fatigue in your feet and your legs and your back. So for me, it's just more of a functional thing like that. Uh, they can get in the way, you know, if you've got a lot of roll around tools. Uh, but, you know, that's something you just kind of cope with um, for the sake of saving your, your back and your feet. So uh, as far as best material, that's going to be subjective. Uh, for me, I would love to have an epoxy painted floor and then have these pads at each station that would be my ideal shop floor mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah i have those pads in my in my floor too and i, I really like those i yeah and uh the as for a stain i just put things over the top of it like the car 
uh, <laughs> uh, stuff like uh, that. You can't see it. It's not there. So. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, I guess, worse comes worse. Break it out with a sledgehammer refill. There you go. There you go. Hey, that's, I didn't even think of that. That's ingenious. <laughs> yeah, with the little new patches all over the place. It's termites. Uh, yeah, that'd be perfect. Great. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, well, let's move on to the next one. Let's see here. We have one from, I do believe this would be a Daryl, who is mm-hmm. asking dovetails. Do I do them by hand with a jig using a router, bandsaw? Then the next question is pins or tails first, Japanese or Western saw? I need help with dovetails. I am not opposed to using a jig, but there are so many different ones, fixed and variable, cute ones, and so costly. But can you help me understand? Uh, well, we'll give it a shot, Daryl. Let's big, see here. Big topic, big topic. Yeah, definitely. Uh, when it comes to dovetails, I've done them both by hand and with a jig. I've actually tried it with a router and a bandsaw. Um, I've had them with green eggs and ham. I've had them where I can. <laughs> so, so I wasn't the only one thinking Dr. Seuss when you said that in the beginning. Do I do them by hand with a jig on the floor? Okay. Eating figs, <laughs> like it totally sounded like that. Anyway, all right, that was funny. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I think I, I tried to answer that one before, and that's pretty much the way it went. I was like, oh no, that's not right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've done them too. I've tried all sorts of different ways. Um, I I think the first time I did it, I did do it with a router and a really really bad jig. Um, I I really hated it. So I think if I were to try a jig, I probably would step up to one of the you know a much nicer one. It's again one of those you get what you pay for kind of a situation. Um, I know that there are plenty of like um, homemade uh, jigs that are out there that are, are definitely worth checking out. Um, I'm trying to I'm gonna totally pull this right out of there. I think there's an author Troy Sexton who writes for Popular Woodworking. I know that he has ones that basically he just kind of makes them up as he goes, and they actually look like hand cut ones. Um, I'd have to go through and look through the articles, but. When it came to the uh, one project I, I'm really, really proud of was Aiden's Dresser. That was my first real jump into uh, hand-cut uh, dovetails. And the one mm-hmm. thing that I like about those is how much versatility you really have in it. You know, you can really place them how you want to. You know, you're not confined by most jigs. I know that Lee Jig has what they have one that you could really set it up any way you want to. You know, the the pins and tails as big as you want and everything. Um, so I think starting out, I probably would recommend the router, uh, depending, again, on, maybe on how much experience you have with it. Um, I know that cut, hand-cut dovetails definitely take a while. This was one of those, I talked about this in a, uh, an episode called Practice, 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 where more or less that's exactly what I did. Every day I came home from lunch, and I would run down to my shop, and I would actually try to cut at least a couple of uh, of dovetails just to try and get the experience in it. And it took a while, and eventually you do learn how to do it. Um, but I think even once you do learn how to do it, it is a very time-consuming uh, task. Uh, yeah. And, of course, the one time you accidentally do hit the chisel with the, or with the mallet the wrong way, uh, wood splinters all over the place, I think you could probably <laughs> get more reproducibility from a router. Um, yeah. You know, when it comes to pins or tails first, um, I go back and forth on either one. It really depends on what day it is and how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Japanese or Western saw, uh, if you were to... D- determined that you were going to go the hand uh, hand cut way. Um, I preferred Japanese saw. Um, I had a little bit of experience with the Western saw, but I think I my first real love was the Japanese saw, and I, I feel very very comfortable with it. Um, so that's that's the way I kind of look at it. Really dovetails. It's it's a matter. It's the user is what it really comes down to. I'm sure. Yeah. If people were to comment on this one, I I know this would be all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Well, the bottom line with this is. I think the first thing he needs to do is decide which path he wants to investigate first, hand cut or machine cut. Um, there's no way we can really uh, properly answer his question uh, no within way. the scope of this podcast. So um, I would say first kind of decide where you want to go with it because everything he brought up, Japanese or Western, pins or tails, everybody has a different opinion. Even you and I probably have different opinions. Uh, for instance, I like a Western saw for hand cut. Um and uh, we could we can handle this in the parking lot afterwards and talk about. Oh, it. oh we're going um, to, buddy. <laughs> I'm going to be I mean, stretching gonna... my black belt. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, there's so many different uh, opinions out there. We would just be giving him our opinion. We wouldn't really be giving him any any good guidance in that in that sense. He has to kind of see. Uh, why different people do it different ways, especially pins or tails. You know, he, he needs to see the different methods and decide which one makes sense to him. Uh, but even before he does that, the easiest thing to do is decide: Do you want to batch things out quickly 
and get them done and make a bunch of drawers real fast? Or do you want to really take your time, you know, and sort of get into the, the, the wood crafting and really, you know, just it's a real personal thing and just, a, I don't know, kind of, I hate to use the word uh, sensual, but when you're doing things like uh, carving or hand cut dovetails, it's just a much more relaxing thing. So, but again, more time consuming and the results are spectacular, yep. but you have to be able to put that time in. So if he makes that decision first, narrow it down first and then start researching you know, one or the other. Uh, don't attack it from this general angle because there's just he's going to be inundated and he's going to be kind of it's just going to be too much for the brain to process at once. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The one thing I do like about like with the router and the jig is the reproducibility. You can set it up real fast, get going, and you can get really really decent results from day right. one. Uh, the the hand one, it, like I said, it's it can look fantastic, but yeah, it it definitely takes practice. And another thing from the first time that I tried to do it, uh, here's one of those things that goes for exercise too. Breathe while you're doing it. I was so nervous, I almost forgot to breathe and fell over. <laughs> Literally. You know what? No kidding, really? Yeah, it was yeah, pretty when, bad. I, when I learned how to do it, that was actually something that the guy said, too, that, that taught me how to do it. He's like, no, you have to breathe. And, it was, it, it, and it's true. When you start to really focus and you're trying to cut to a line, for some reason, we stop breathing. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely breathe. It's a good thing. Suddenly, you're looking um, at the ceiling, and you're like, what the hell? All <laughs> right. Okay, so we got a, another question here from, uh, from our boy, Daryl. Um, he says, can you give me some help in tuning an old Bailey Jack plane and a Stanley smoothing plane? And I think, Matt, you know something a little bit about this. I've heard about this before. Yeah. yeah. Um, I definitely i have I've covered this in a... Uh, Quite a few, a couple of podcasts. In fact, actually, I'm. In mm -hmm. fact, actually, I'm going to bring them up right now. In fact, I did a video podcast about kind of the basic of tuning up a, uh, you know, a, a either a, a jack plane or well, just a, a plane in general. More or less, the the main thing is the bottom needs to be as dead flat as possible. And I'm, I'm trying to bring it right up now so that I can give you the reference without getting into too much detail about it. Because I think seeing the it would be my lapping the hand plane part one if you go to mattsbasementworkshop.com and you click on the categories bring up video it's like one two three down uh i broke it into two parts and more or less it's it's a great way to kind of I'll, I try to go into detail about you know things you should be looking for, things you should be thinking about when you go to do this, and then the actual technique itself. It it's not very difficult. It's just a matter of literally a little elbow grease, and uh, you're more or less you're there. So you can definitely click on the video and go right there. And uh, hopefully, I will answer your question. If not, drop me a line. Hey, let us know. You know, we can even yeah. leave us another voicemail or something. Yep, so, sounds good. Cool. All right, let's see here. Let's move on to another one then, since that one was kind of easy to answer. Easy one, easy one. Uh, let's see here. Um, all right, since the information that you provide is reliable, researched, and scientifically backed. Wait, wait is he talking to us? Oh, yeah. Um, I think that so. must be the other Wood Talk Online podcast. Oh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was hoping you could provide us with a source or list of wood species and their toxicities. For example, before making a cutting board, it would be helpful to know if any exotics would be potentially hazardous. Likewise, when making a piece of furniture, which dust we need to take precautions not to breathe, I have found a couple of lists, one that appeared in American Wood Turner and another which appeared in the Musical Instrument Makers Forum. I know, Matt, you don't have to worry about shavings from hand planes. Uh, you'd be surprised. But mm -hmm. just in case, I use a power tool that creates a little sawdust. Please, in your own special ways, consolidate this information so that it's practical for us to use. Thank you both for your time devoted to us, foreign woodworkers. P.S. Mark, would you be offended if I called myself the wood splinterer? <laughs> okay. Uh, you can call yourself anything. Just don't call me late for dinner. Oh, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> okay, let's see here. Um, oh, you know what? I didn't do my homework so well on this one well, but when it comes yeah. to that, it was holly is one of the woods that you definitely want to stay away from if i remember right that's because mm -hmm. I, I remember reading an article a long time ago somebody actually asked like you know would it be i, I want to say it was like holly or something like that that it was like you know could i use this for a wooden utensil <laughs> what right <laughs> uh no um well you know what this would have been one that would have been nice if we did our homework but uh you know that seems to be our thing not to do our homework but um, this, again, is another one that anybody has any suggestions, that'd be great, because I, I was actually in the chat room uh, the other day, and I believe someone brought up a webpage that gives profiles of different woods, and, and uh, I'm sure there was toxicity information and things like that in there, so hopefully uh, whoever was there at that time can can actually repost that, uh, that link on Wood Talk Online, but, um, you know, see... 
I don't really worry about it, and the reason I don't is because, in my opinion, all dust is bad. Right. And whether it's specifically extra toxic or you know something I have to worry about more, it's not an issue if I'm wearing my respirator. So, I mean, the thing is with this woodworking, regardless of what age you are, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, I mean, you have a number of years to invest in this hobby. And if you want to have them be, you know, easy breathing years without lung problems and uh, health issues associated, you don't, you don't want that from your hobby. You know, you want to be healthy as you do this stuff. So just make a point of always preventing yourself from breathing dust. There is no good dust. None of it's going to help you. You know, right. it's all going to cause problems. <laughs> so whether it's extra toxic or not is irrelevant to me. I always wear uh, a respirator whenever I'm kicking up a lot of dust. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and of course, if you're cutting any sheet goods or anything like that, f- you know, forget about it. There's a, a, a ton of chemicals in there that's just not good for you to breathe. So oh, don't even get me started would... on MDF. I mean, that's oh uh, yeah, insane. exactly. <laughs> it's nasty, and you know, so just uh, just protect yourself at all times, and you don't really need a concise list. You you know, you it still would be good to educate yourself and know which ones are extra dangerous. Right. Um, you know, and hopefully we'll be able to provide that information in the comments section of the, of the site for them. Right, yeah, because I really think that with certain exotics, I know that there are some oils that they, they do give off that, you know, it's kind of like an onion. I mean, the main reason why you cry mm-hmm. is because you get, you know, the, the onion oil, I guess you could almost call it, like on your hands, and then you rub your eyes, and it all goes downhill yep. from there. So, yeah, and, you know, another thing you need to think about is allergies around you because obviously with the dust and everything maybe you're not allergic to it but what about a family member i know in my house cedar is one of them that if i'm working with any kind of cedar in my basement um i have to be extra careful i mean i've got like uh, filters everywhere going off because it affects me a little bit but it affects my son a whole lot so it's definitely yeah so it's really it's a matter of just you know, yeah, finding the right thing and going from there. So, yeah, definitely anybody that can help us out with this and help John out here, by all means, you know, hey, send us some information. Definitely. Cool. Okay, so we got another one from Ty. Ty writes us a lot, too. He's, oh, hey. uh, he's another buddy of the show. I thought that name looked familiar. Yeah, yeah, unless it's a different Ty. But no. anywho, uh, he's got two questions here. Um, he says, question one. These are a little bit different. Uh, he says, when I listen to your show, I can't help but think, how, you, how do you pay for downloads? Have you considered going to a BitTorrent distribution? Uh, just having the option on the site may save you some money, but that amount of money saved versus time, I don't know what it's worth. Jeez, I'm burping from water. What is up with that? <laughs> anyway, I, I always try to use – it's because I'm talking too much. I always try to use the torrent link uh, because I know it's cheaper for the content provider and keeps them in business uh, longer. Just food for thought. Well, quickly, I can answer that. Um When you're a podcaster, there are a lot of free resources and free hosting solutions out there, and I take advantage of all of them. So um, I don't pay per download, and that's not really something we have to worry about. So uh, download away and uh, have fun because it's not costing me a penny. Um, uh, What does cost me money is just the standard upkeep of the site. Uh, and and our our hosting service, but we actually don't have to pay per download for anything, which is fantastic. Right. Otherwise, um, you'd get one episode and we'd yank it off real yeah. quick. <laughs> well, actually, I did do that once. I put up, um, I think I put up a test episode, or maybe I don't even may even even have been one of the Wood Talk Online episodes, but just experimentally, and immediately the numbers just went crazy, and Nicole was like, "Get it off, get it off." So, um, yeah, using the free resources is really the way to go. Uh, question number two. Oh, I should have previewed this because I don't know what it is. I'm bored, Mark. Can I work in your shop for one of my vacations <laughs> for a, for free for a week? I'll pay. <laughs> I'll pay for anything I break, damage, destroy, or catch on fire, and I'll sign whatever I have to. Seriously, Ty. No. Because <laughs> once you let um, one in, you're going to have to let everybody else in, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I've mentioned before that uh, I might not be the best person to work with. Uh, no, seriously, um, you know, at this stage of my career, I'm not really ready to take on uh, people in an apprentice-style uh, capacity. I still There's still something about feeling like you're still well into uh, the learning process that it just doesn't feel right to, you know, I, I like to spread around what I know and share what I know with people on the Wood Whisperer, but I don't know that I would, I see myself in that capacity just yet. Now, someday maybe, you know, but right now, things are just too crazy, too hectic, 
and having someone in the shop that isn't there every day, like, like my stepdad who knows how to work around my bad moods and things like that, um, would just be more of a liability than anything else. But I am actually, uh, honored and, um, you know, I think that, that that's great. I really appreciate him making an offer like that. That makes me feel good that someone would want to spend some time in my <laughs> shop. Um, but you know what? Turn on the webcam and, uh, it's almost like you're here. Who knows? Maybe you could be like on one of those, there was that one book out there, the, uh, uh, oh, what was it? The uh, uh, assistance to the stars, and it's called. Uh, there you go. Where's my effing latte? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, you know, I could always use some lattes during the day, so I might, I might be able to uh, put them to work out here. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> my my favorite coffee shop just closed on me, so I'm going through withdrawal right now. Oh <laughs> uh, man, that's a bummer. Always a bummer when you I lose your favorite coffee skinny, shop. Skinny, skinny double latte with an extra choker <laughs> on top. Skinny latte. Wow. Okay. okay. Anyway. <laughs> so let's see here. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, we have Roberto, who uh, sent us this. Uh, let's see here. First of all, great podcast. You guys are breaking new ground, and this is a great thing for our hobby, or in your case, trade. Well, yeah, okay for you. <laughs> uh, I have a simple question concerning loose tenon mortise joints. The Norm Abrams ah, once made a door project. He used loose tenon joints and made the mortise larger uh, and the tenon, or maybe maybe he's supposed to say and then uh, rather then, then the tenon. Then the tenon. I think that's what he was going for. Yeah. Um, he explained that this would help with glue expansion and how such a large and heavy project needed this oversized mortise. My question is, can you use this on all loose mortise and tenon joints, no matter the size, be it a door or a table leg joint? Uh, it is one of the strongest joints, and I always seem to get something wrong when I cut them. What he did seems to me an easy fix for my two tight-fitting mortises. What do you guys think? Uh, let's see here, but a larger mortise than the tenon. I mean, I know that when I make uh, my traditional, well, it sounds like this was a floating tenon from what I was, yeah, loose tenon. If I remember correctly, yeah, I, I did see that episode. I think it was loose. Yeah, and I, I know that, um, I, I mean, I do like my mortise being a little bit larger to compensate for the for the glue, but nothing beats a nice, snug fit if possible. I mean, that definitely, right. you know, once in a while I'll, I will make a little extra room at the bottom in the tenon with kind of like a little glue well so that, you know, if I did put too much glue, it can kind of drip down a little bit and uh -huh. go from there. But I, I, I don't know. I can't imagine making the, the mortise so large that it's really going to kind of, you're relying on the glue to hold it in place. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, I, think, I mean, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I was just going to say, I'm like, usually what I like to do is, um, I, I actually, I, I, to some degree, I, I make my tenons, I don't want to say them, say like oversized, but I make them snug to the point where I can't quite fit it in by hand. And then I try to, uh, I'll come back with like a, a chisel and just slightly par the wood a little bit to get it to fit in there and then go and compensate from, from there. I made the mistake once of making my mortise. Uh, w wider than the tenon, and uh, it kept falling apart on me no matter how much glue I added. Okay. All right. So, well, you know, th this is one of those things where I mean, yeah, if you if you do what he's talking about and you give yourself a little bit of a breathing room on on the mortise, um, it will definitely sacrifice some strength if you think about it. And you're just you have two pieces joined at a ninety degree angle with a mortise and tenon, and you want to you know push those two together, so you're trying to break this joint apart it's going to be easier to do if that joint is loose, if there's a little bit of uh, uh, airspace in the sides. But the truth of the matter is that the, the primary strength of that joint really comes from the long grain glue bond. Mm -hmm. And the face of the tenon glued into that mortise is really where most of the strength comes from. So there there is a significant amount of strength in just those faces that doesn't even rely on the ends of the tenon. But there's something to be said about, and it has nothing to do with glue, it's just the physical presence of that tenon being in a perfectly fitting mortise that even without glue limits the movement of that piece. So you could see how much strength it actually does add. So I, w I mean, maybe give it a little breathing room, but I wouldn't get carried away. I wouldn't, I wouldn't stress over getting an absolutely perfect fit in terms of the length of that, uh, that mortise, maybe give yourself a little bit of breathing room. And like you said, a little area for the, for the glue to puddle into if you need to, uh, but don't get carried away with it. I, I see Norm's point and why he did it in such a large scale like that. You might want a little breathing room, but I also see the fact that it may be hard to line those parts up perfectly. And Norm may have also done that simply because the glue up would have been horrendously difficult <laughs> if those were locked down into position and he had no wiggle room. Um, so he may have been giving it a little bit more purpose than it needed, but obviously a four inch wide tenon or however long they were, uh, 
is going to expand across the grain like that. So there is some validity to it. Okay. I don't know. Okay. I, th- I think Norm should have just done it the right way from the beginning. Uh, damn Norm, he's always <sighs> screwing things up. I'm going to tell you said that, not me. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, if you meet him, let me know. Okay. Um, all right, so where are we? That was uh, Roberto. Yes. Okay, we're on, a, we're on an email from Scott. Hello, Scott. Scott, he says. Great Scott. Great Scott. He says, hey, guys, love the podcast and all. It's so reassuring to hear you, quote, unquote, pros talk about the same problems and solutions I experience as a hobbyist. <laughs> Little does he know that. <laughs> I was going to say, wait a minute, you're talking to another pro? Mark, I can't believe you're doing this to me. <laughs> pro, I mean, if someone, if pro just means that I receive money for doing the work that I do, correct. Oh, in um, that case, yeah, I occasionally, um, I get, you know, money for the value meal down at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> but pro is in knowing what I'm talking about? No, not so much. Um, okay. It gives me hope that I too could turn my hobby into a business someday uh, after I retire from the military. Well, that's good. Uh, my question is more for Mark than Matt. Hey, we get a lot of these. Am I more popular than you? Whatever. Okay, I'm going to totally like leave right now, okay? <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Just no, kidding. they're just throwing you a bone. They're like, Matt knows what he's they talking about. Mark give me right something now. to do, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Give me some practice. Uh, he says, tell us more details about working under David Marks if you can. Uh, how did you land that gig and uh, how long did you work with him? Uh, was it more or less an apprenticeship? Did he actually pay you on top of giving you the chance to learn from a master? Uh, either way, I think you got a sweet deal. Uh, I know you're hell-bent on never taking on an employee. Hey, we were just talking about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but would you ever consider giving someone the same sort of opportunity uh, David gave you? So that, that I, yeah, we already answered that question. Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to go into too much detail here. I, I have answered this question a number of times in email and chat room and stuff like that. Um, I need to get an FAQ together uh, so people can hear about my experience with David. And it was a great time. It was, I, if you say more or less an apprenticeship, I would go on the side of less. <laughs> I spent uh, a couple, I was up there a couple times and spent a few months there. So, um, you know, having, met, you know, studied his shows and sort of, I won't say mastered the techniques, but I, I was able to jump in his shop and work with his methods and, and, and I sort of fit in very well. Um, so we, we went from zero to 60 pretty quickly with my, my learning when I was there. Um, so, I mean, they, I've got some cool stories and things like that, you know, but I, I don't, you know, I don't want to spend too much time talking about that here. I didn't uh, get paid. I was all on my own expense and I would never have expected to be paid <laughs> for that. Um, you know, that was the type of thing where I'll just suck up as much detail and information as I can and, and go home very happy about it. Uh, let's see. Yeah. I mean, I agree. It was absolutely a sweet deal. It was being in the right place at the right time. Uh, David's a good guy. And even now with his school, it's expanded so much. Uh, if anybody gets a chance, go to his website, it's djmarks.com. And he's got all of his classes listed there and it's, uh, he's got a pretty, pretty fancy looking school there now. So, nice. um, if I even had the time these days, I don't think I'd be able to get back up there uh, and do that sort of situation again. Um, so I, I guess I did luck out a little bit with that. But uh, like I said, I'll, I'll definitely put that information out there for those who are interested in hearing the story. Cool. You know, that's something. Mark, Scott there said he's from the he's in the military, and I noticed that at the last one, Roberto, I believe he's a uh, captain in the Air Force, actually. Ah, so we've okay. got our, our military people. Military support. Good. Oh, hey. So... Okay, um, let's see here. Let's move on to the next one, which would be, uh, hey, guys, great podcast. Two quick questions. Yeah, we'll make them long. Trust us. Uh, Let's see here. (laughs) We can do that. Uh, Question number one. I just bought a joiner off Craigslist. It's in great shape, used only a few times, apparently very sharp and at a great price. My only issue is a bit of rust starting on the table. I'm thinking some uh, double-lot steel wool and Johnson's paste wax. We'll return it to showroom shine. Wondering if you had any advice on this type of situation. Well, I think we covered that earlier with a question from Canada. So let's move on to number two. I'm yep. looking for a planer. Would you suggest for, or what would you suggest for a relatively serious hobbyist into furniture and interior trim? Besides, uh, well, he says he's going to buy it through your Wood Whisperer store, of course. Ooh, what's the most expensive one? Quick. Yeah, I was going to say, quick, go, 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 go. Uh, Powermatic, be... twenty-inch planer, and nothing less. That's right. Yeah, if you if you <laughs> opt for anything less, you're a fool. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, let's see here. For a relatively serious hobbyist into furniture, man, that's when you really start questioning going from the lunchbox style to like the yeah. the larger kind of floor model. Right. Um, it's definitely that's the crossover point. But yeah. Uh, oh boy. Well, I, let me put I'm, it this way. I mean, you, my, I got a buddy of mine who uh, owns a refinishing shop, and he also takes on a lot of uh, built-ins and, and new construction projects. And he has been getting by with a uh, rigid 
lunchbox planer this entire time and has, has never even thought the thought of getting a new one. Um, as long as you're not going to be planing anything wider than, what is it, 12 inches is usually the capacity. Yeah, 13, um, 12, 13, something like that, yeah. Yeah, a serious hobbyist can certainly get by with a lunchbox-style planer. You don't need to go for the floor-standing uh, floor model. Yep, and that, that's what I have in my shop, and I, I've been able to do a ton with it. Once in a great while, I will actually hit that point where I'm like, 13 and a half, what the hell's up with that? But, yeah, um, yeah most right. of the time, I think you can easily get away with it, and the nice thing is the fact that you know, you can easily move it out of the way, and worse comes to worse, they, I think they hold their resale value pretty well, so yeah, who knows, exactly. you can always move it on from there. So, right, cool. but if I would say if the budget's there, yeah, it may, why not step up to a 15-inch floor standing or even a 20-inch if you want that capacity? Absolutely. I can honestly say that I've got a 20 or yeah, 20-inch uh, Powermatic floor standing, and I think one side of the blade significantly worn more than the other just by <laughs> habit. I, I keep putting it on the same side. I can't think of more than one time that I've actually used the capacity of that planer. Okay. Yep. You know, so I mean, in that sense, someone who who has a lot of uh, material moving in and out of the shop. So, uh, yeah. So I would say, you know, don't don't feel don't feel like obligated that you have to step up to that uh, larger uh, size. But if if you have the funds and and you want to, go for it. Yep. I definitely say take a look at what's the average size of most of your components you're pushing through. I think that's one way mm-hmm. to definitely look at it and go from there. So right. cool. That, Great. that was an and easy that was, one. Uh, that was Mark with a C from New Jersey. Oh, another New Jersey boy. Yeah, from Red Bank. So, Man. okay, uh, let's move on to the next one from Lewis. Uh, first of all, I'd like to congratulate both of you for the great shows. Uh, I'm working you. on a bed for my baby daughter. That's very nice. Uh, the one with slats on the side so the baby doesn't fall off the bed. That's a, that's a good feature. Uh, and I'm wondering about using shellac to finish it, uh, which is non-toxic. Um, just to, to correct there, and it's, it is non-toxic once it's dry. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's got ethanol in it when it's wet. Uh, I would like to know what are your experiences with shellac and what would be the best procedure to apply it? The wood I'm using is cherry. Should I apply the shellac on the bare wood or, uh, first give it a coat of boiled linseed oil to both seal the wood and bring out the figure uh, of the wood? On top of the shellac, I'm thinking about beeswax, uh, which is also a non-toxic finish. Does this sequence sound okay to you? Uh, boiled linseed oil, shellac, and beeswax. Uh, thanks a lot. Take care, Lewis. Now, I would say, hmm, hmm, hmm. You know, I don't even know that you need to go with the boiled linseed oil. Um, you know, shellac right on a, a cherry board is going to look gorgeous. You know, and if you want, get some amber shellac or maybe... Uh, excuse me, an orange shellac, give it a little bit more of a, a color to it. Um, but that cherry is going to age beautifully and the shellac right on top. I think it's going to be gorgeous, even without the boiled linseed oil. Um, if you want, I would definitely try it on scraps. See if you even notice a difference between the one that's been given the oil first and then the shellac. Um, you may find that you don't really even need it. Um, I would say quickly that, you know, for application, you know, you could thin the shellac down and wipe it on if you want, sand in between coats. You could build up a nice finish that way. You could certainly brush it. My favorite way is uh, spraying because shellac does dry quickly. Uh, it lends itself very well to spraying and kind of kind of sprays a lot like lacquer in, the, in those terms. Um, I personally, again, my opinion, I would skip the beeswax. I'm not a big fan of wax on furniture at all. It's a, a maintenance um, you know, you're signing yourself up for, for maintenance because as soon as you start using wax, you kind of have to continue using it to bring the, the, the sheen up and to spruce up the piece, make it look nice. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So I would say skip the wax, but I, I would also, you know, encourage him to consider using a poly finish on, on a bed like the, or, a, you know, uh, what is it? A crib or he's at a bed. Right. Yeah, it was a, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, a polyurethane and varnish will be non-toxic when it's cured. Um, you know, and if you're really nervous about it, give it a good month in an open air, you know, fresh air environment, let it air out. And it's, you know, you'll get the smell out that way as well. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to, to make a piece of furniture or something uh, for, for my child if I had one um, and use polyurethane as a finish on it. Um, but if he's being extra safe, of course, the shellac is, is the way to go because it is, you know, used in food products and medicine and things like that all the time. Right. Um, so anyway, that would be my advice to uh, to Lewis. Do you have any, anything to add to that? No, I, I totally agree. When I saw that about the boil, boiled linseed oil, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, no, nah, just go right to the shellac and... Yeah, especially if he's, if he's extra concerned about the toxicity and stuff, be, you know, you're, you're really not going to want to boiled linseed oil on there anyway because there right. is some nasty stuff in that so right 
Yeah, I mean, just if you're that nervous, just go for the straight shellac. If you have the means to spray it, spray it. Right. The one thing that really took me from this email was the slats for the side so the baby doesn't fall out of the bed. That must be what I did wrong. I mean, Aiden was bouncing constantly. I mean, he seems like a normally (laughs) okay kid, but we have a few moments with him. I think that was the biggest problem. (laughs) Stems back to that one time. Yeah. See that? Always put slats in the bed for your children. Yeah, and then the drying polyurethane, well... While it was still wet, it did help him go to sleep pretty quickly. We had a hard time waking him up, but <laughs> you wake up and he's sucking on one of the rails. Yeah, what are you doing? I, now oh, I got to well. redo that piece. Oh <laughs> eh, well, it's just brain cells, no big deal. Yeah, that's no problem at all. <laughs> okay, let's see here. We have a question from Joe, and oh, it looks like this is kind of uh, an, again another one with the kind of a, a rust thing. Mark mentioned in the earlier episode that using WD forty on a table saw surface was not a good thing. I was just wondering the reason. Um, I have been using WD-40 on my table saw top for around eight years now without any problems. About every month or two, at the end of a woodworking day, I just spray the top with WD-40, rub it in good, and wipe off the excess. I don't have a speck of rust, and I haven't had any finishing problems. I don't use wax, so maybe you were just talking about the WD-40 reacting with the wax. Uh, I also tried using Shields T9 product that Matt mentioned on one of his shows, but didn't really like it and went back to WD-40. Joe. Oh, so he's one of those that didn't like the uh, the T9. Yes. Let's yes, that may have been what what had it, why it was fresh in my my brain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that happens with a lot. I'm like, I just read this, but where? Yep. Um, so yeah, there's. Well, more... I mean, to address his question directly, um, I have read on just forums and countless posts and just people. For every one person that has success with WD-40, there's about ten that say that it actually caused rust to form on their, um, you know, on their tables. Everybody's environment is different and every situation is different. So nothing works or doesn't work for everybody. Um, but in most cases you'll find that people, um, constantly say WD-40 is a solvent. It's not, uh, good for preventing rust on the surface and you have to be careful with the marketing jargon and things like that. But to me, you know, just like with anything else in woodworking, even if I don't have definitive scientific results that tell me one way or the other, if nine out of 10 people tell me something, I'm probably going to heed that advice just to be safe. Right. So the, the situation with the WB-40, I've never had that happen. I've never had rust form after using WD-40, but when enough people tell me that they have, that's enough reason for me not to use it as my final coating on the saw. Right. Uh, and that's why I look toward another product like the Bow Shield T9. Right. Yeah. And it's just like TV channels. If you don't like it, there's always another one. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Give it a shot. So yep. cool. Okay. Uh, and I guess this is our final one. So we actually uh, we're doing pretty good on time and just All enough right. time for this last one. So let's roll with Sweet. it. Uh, we got Kevin's email here. It says, great work on the podcast. My question is that I have a basement workshop and currently use hand planes to joint my stock. I'm considering buying a jointer. I currently have a lunchbox planer, so I either choose the flattest stock available and skip plane. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, that's just running the boards through, you know, right from the store. Just give them a few quick passes, flip it over, passes on the other side, and get it as flat as you can get it without really technically truly flattening the face. Uh, or he flattens one side with hand planes, uh, which works for the projects I have done. But as more people see and hear about my work, I have more uh, work upcoming and need to be more productive. I've done the research online. My considerations are a basic 6-inch joiner. Everyone says that I wish I went bigger and got the 8-inch joiner. Uh, I could fit an 8-inch joiner in my shop, but would never be able to upgrade to a larger planer. I've been really considering a combo jointer planer. Do you guys think the combo machines are worthwhile considerations, or should I stay with a tried-and-true 8-inch joiner and replaceable lunchbox planer? Uh, thanks for your time, Kevin. I would say, I would say go, <laughs> I would say go with the eight-inch joiner. I personally am not a fan of combo machines unless you're tight for space. Um, I've even used, you know, one of the uh, a really decent one in the past, and I just, I don't know, switching back and forth from one to the other. Uh, you know, depending on what type of combo he's talking about, a lot of times you can't do both operations. You've got to. Uh, modify the machine to expose the blades properly for the next operation. And that's not fun for me. Um, So I would say, you know, go with the independent machines. I do think if you get a six inch at some point, you may wish that you went with the extra two inches for the eight inch joiner. Uh, So I would agree with those people who said that. And and now that I own an eight inch joiner, 
Um, there are many cases where I've saved myself a lot of trouble and a lot of time because I do have that extra two inches. Right. Um, and, and again, we just talked about the lunchbox planers. You can get away with that for a very long time. So it may be five or six years before you really feel that you need to upgrade your planer uh, and a 12-inch capacity is, uh, you know, is definitely good enough for most work. Mm-hmm, definitely, yeah. So, I, I, I pretty much, I, I'm going to have to agree there. I, you know, I, Having the six inch and maybe not feeling the pressure of the eight inch, uh, no, it, I was I was totally gonna <laughs> try and like come up with an argument against it. But I agree. If if you the jointer, I think probably if if you go larger, that that's a good way to go. And considering it's a matter of the the size of the most of the components, I think is one of the things you really have to look at. I, I think the majority of people really aren't gonna have to worry about really large panels. And if you already are right. using a hand plane, I think you would kind of you know there's no problem if you have a large panel. I think you, you, it sounds like maybe you're a little proficient enough to maybe knock it down without having to worry about it and it's not going to slow you down when it mm-hmm. comes to uh, production wise in fact if anything it might actually you might find that you know it's just a, a quick swipe and you're all set and uh, there it goes so yeah okay. i have to agree i would stay away from the combo if possible it, it's it, from what i've read not like i've had any experience with it it just there's been a few reviews that are kind of like you know yeah nice but uh, kind of a pain in the butt sometimes sure sure and so. it seems like with those if there are going to be problems you know most people don't have combo machines, at least in the U.S. I know outside the U.S. they're a lot more popular, right. you know, all kinds of combo machines. But, you know, for us here, it kind of helps if you have the same things that other people have because then it's easier to troubleshoot it when you have problems, um, you know, and easier to set these things up. So, you know, for, even for that, it might be, you know, not a great reason, but one, one of the reasons to go with the standard equipment that most people own. Right. Absolutely. So, cool. All right. Well, All right. that that looks like another show in the bag. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, luckily, at the end of this one, I'm not in the bag myself. Uh, well, yeah. I was drinking water, so that would help D- too. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to remind everybody: if you have any uh, questions or comments, or if you want to help any of the uh, people out who sent in. Uh, voicemails and emails. Uh, you have some suggestions for them. Feel free to leave some comments. We're trying to encourage the uh, participation aspect of this. We want to hear from you guys as well, because uh, Matt and I certainly don't know everything, uh, despite how you know cocky we may be sometimes. But that's right, <laughs> we, man. <laughs> yeah, we certainly don't know everything, and we love to hear what you guys have to say. And uh, obviously, there's a ton of ways to get things done, and we'd like to hear how you guys do it. So. Uh, you know, don't be afraid to send us a voicemail or an email. That's right. Absolutely. And you know where to send those to. That would be uh, the email, of course, would be woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Or you can go over to leave us a voicemail by just going to woodtalkonline.com and clicking on leave a voicemail or leave a message and uh, put it right in there. We'll get it. We'll play it. And everybody gets to hear you. And, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we are a couple of smart dudes, but once in a while I like to, you know, I don't like to flex flex the brain muscle too much. <laughs> Let other people do the hard work first, the heavy lifting. That's right. <laughs> work smarter. Yeah, exactly. Well, great. Until next time, guys, we will see you later. See ya.